We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. It's a joy to have you with us. Uh, we'd love to meet you after the service at the Connect table in the lobby. Um, we'd also uh, give you the opportunity to connect with us at EmmausKC.com forward slash connect. EmmausKC.com forward slash connect. There's a digital connect card there as well as other opportunities to get plugged in. But it's great to have you here today. We hope you feel uh, welcomed and, uh, and encouraged in the Lord. Hey, today we are um, in our residence series, which means in a moment uh, we will have one of our pastoral residents come and preach for us. Uh, Drake Burroughs will be coming and presenting the word from Philippians chapter 3. You could go ahead and turn there. We'll read it in a moment, Philippians chapter 3. Um, we announced several weeks ago that um, Emmaus is in the planning stages of a church plant, um, which we are believing will be in South Kansas City. Uh, and Drake is one. <laughs> Sean said, whoop, whoop. Sean's been driving 45 minutes for seven years to come here, so I'm guessing that it was his exit call right there. I'm not sure, <laughs> but um, uh, but uh, we're, we're excited about that. Drake is uh, going to be one of the planters of that church, and we'll give more information about what all that looks like at some point, but we're excited for him to preach. You, you probably know his face. He's led worship for us a number of times here as well, um, but we're really excited for him to come and preach for us. Before we do that, we, we want to pray, but today we also want to pray for a couple in our church. So Grant and Abigail, would you two mind coming forward? Um, in our resident series, it's it's great opportunity today. Today's actually a gospel goodbye for us. This is Grant and Abigail Reynolds coming forward. Uh, Grant did our pastoral residency, uh, went through it for the, the two and a half years uh, that, that he, he was here and um, saw a lot of growth in him. We did, and um, him and Abigail have been involved in our church, active in our church and community. Many of you have come to, to love them, and uh, today's their last Sunday with us. They are moving to Topeka, Kansas right, the, the, the great metropolis, and uh, going to Topeka, Kansas, Topeka Baptist Church, where Grant will be the young adult pastor there at their church, and so we want to pray for them and send them out with our blessing, um, and in doing such, uh, we will uh, ask our covenant members to reach out your hands, um, just in a symbol of, of praying and sending them out from us, uh, and then make sure you grab grab them after the service and, and say goodbye and, uh, and those things, and so guys, we love you. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks for just uh, um, three years that you've really been at Emmaus uh, to, to walk with us and, and be invested. Um, and we, we've seen you grow to such um, incredible um, lengths, man. We're so proud of you and thankful for you all. And your family's growing while you've been here as well. Um, and so we want to send you with our blessing. And when I'm done with that, you all can go back to your seat. I'll read the scriptures and then invite Drake to come preach. Guys, let's pray. Jesus, I pray for um, Grant and Abigail that you would... Um, Father, would you go before them and behind them and beside them as they go to Topeka? Father, there are men and women, um, young men and young women, um, who are waiting there to hear the gospel, and they don't even know it yet. Father, their lives are waiting to be transformed by the grace of Christ, and they don't know it yet. And you're sending Drake and Abigail, or excuse me, you're sending Grant and Abigail to be a part of that. And so, Father, we thank you for that, and we pray for your blessing upon them as they go. Thank you for the joy of walking with them um, through this, um, this time that we've had. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right, Philippians chapter 3. In a rush to come here, as many of you are on Sunday mornings, I forgot my Bible. And so I, I, grabbed, 
I grabbed my son's Bible and uh, forgot mine, but then my son's is a different translation, so I couldn't decide if it was better to read a different translation or to read my wife's Bible, which is for hobbits. I'm not sure. <laughs> so here we, here we go. If I miss the line, it's because I can't see it. So just keep reading with me, all right? Too tiny, I know. It's so tiny. Asa said it's too tiny for your hands. I know. All right. Thank, thanks, son. I think that's a fat joke, but here we go. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Good morning, Emmaus. It's good to be with you guys. It's all about who you know. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before, haven't you? And there really is a kind of grain of truth in it. For example, just think with me. How did you end up at your current job? Why did you send your kids to this school over that one? Why do you exercise at this gym over that one? In fact, how did you end up here at Emmaus? How did you become a member? If you're new with us this morning, how did you get here? How did you find out about us? You see, who you know really matters. It changes things. And we know this intuitively, which is why the term networking is so popular in so many groups. Who you know or who you don't know has the ability to either hinder or advance your growth in whatever circles you're a part of. It's what makes a good novel a good novel. The whole story's moving in one direction and suddenly a new character is introduced and it changes the trajectory. All of a sudden, new possibilities arise from a new character. So who you know really is that important. It's part of what it means to be human. It's part and parcel of what it means to be an image bearer in the midst of other image bearers. And in our text, the Apostle Paul is going to say, in some sense, the same thing. It's all about who you know. Except he's going to narrow the focus of that who on one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to show us that knowing Jesus, 
Really knowing him changes not just the direction of our lives, but our entire identity. So kids, when you go home this morning and your parents ask you, what's the main point of the sermon? You can say this. Knowing Jesus changes everything. In fact, knowing Jesus and being known by him is what the book of Philippians is ultimately about. And before we jump into our specific text, I just want to offer a disclaimer, and that's this. We're just dipping our toes in the water this morning. We're just pulling the curtain back and seeing just a little bit of the beauty of Philippians. And you might actually feel that as we go. Like it's just a short road trip there and back. So I'd encourage you at some point in the near future to just sit down with the book and read the whole thing. Take in the whole story. Track all the flows and rhythms of Paul's argument. Most importantly, allow it to do the work of shaping your heart and mind around the gospel. That's what it's all about. And that's my prayer for us this morning. As much as I can, I want to get out of the way and I want to allow the text to speak for itself. After all, these are the words of God. So let's pray before we jump in. God, you have spoken in your word once for all. You have spoken in your son once for all. It is our duty. It is our joy. It is our great need to listen. To just listen. To pay attention. So Lord, clear our minds. Clear our thoughts this morning. Allow us to just receive what you have for us in Philippians 3. Lord, help me get out of the way. Spirit, preach a better sermon than I have prepared. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Philippians 3, chapter 1. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. <laughs> Paul writes, Finally, my brothers and sisters, check the footnote in your Bible, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, I want you to first notice that word safe. It's easy to miss. To write these things, Paul says, is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So something was in the air in Philippi that had Paul concerned about the church's safety. There was a danger about. And whatever Paul's about to say in this passage was aimed at keeping them safe, at protecting them like a father protects his children. And we're about to see what that specific danger was. But before we get there, I just want to note in passing how Paul, when he, when he thinks and he prays and he writes to the church in Philippi, he recognizes the reality of danger in the Christian life. Like real soul-damaging danger, which is why in chapter 1 he encourages them, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, with a kind of humility and a kind of meekness before God that stays awake to the spiritual battle around us, a battle with real dangers, real possibilities to hurt us as a church. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's why Paul is concerned about the church's safety. And I don't want you to miss the connection between Paul's mentioning their safety and their joy. Look at the command in verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, when you read Paul, it doesn't take long to recognize that he was a man absolutely obsessed with being as happy in God as humanly possible. In Philippians alone, which only totals four chapters, he mentions joy and rejoicing 17 times. In fact, in chapter 4, he repeats the same command twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Here's the kicker. Paul wrote these words as he awaited trial in Rome under house arrest. So it's one thing to call a friend on a nice sunny day with a cup of coffee in your hand and say, Sister, rejoice in the Lord. It's quite another to do that under house arrest, awaiting trial, not knowing if you're even going to make it through the end of the week, not knowing if this might be the last thing you write. And so when Paul says rejoice in the Lord, it's not a kind of naive sentiment. It's not a coffee cup verse. Nor is it a kind of mindless mantra for rainy days. And really, that may get you a feeling of of a kind of inner peace for a couple minutes, maybe a half hour. But that will not give you the kind of deep and abiding joy that Paul's talking about, the kind you're thirsting for. Only God can give it because only God has the capacity to give it. And so the psalmist says, In your presence, O God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the kind of rejoicing Paul's talking about. Look at me at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul warns them three times, look out, literally be on guard against a certain group of people. He doesn't give us a lot of information in the book of Philippians about these these people or this group. But we do know from this verse and the next that they were most likely Jewish. And they seem to have aligned themselves with the kind of people we see in Acts. In Acts 15, Luke tells us that some men came down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers and sisters, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. In other words, if you really want to be righteous, if you really want to be a part of God's people, then you've got to prove it by showing that you're willing to work for it. And for Paul, and here Paul's telling the Philippians, no, these people are deeply mistaken. Don't miss the irony in verse 2. See, in Paul's day, it was typically Jews who referred to Gentiles as dogs, which basically meant non-Jewish and, in their eyes, unclean. And here, Paul subverts that claim to superiority and says, no, it's actually you who are the dogs. It's you who are the evildoers. And he doesn't even give them the honor of being called the circumcision party, which, as weird as it sounds to modern ears, they would have loved Instead, he calls them those who mutilate the flesh. 
which really is meant to kind, cause a kind of gag reflex in us. You see, when it comes to the gospel, Paul, and really God through Paul, will allow nothing to stand in its way. And the irony of Paul's warning only intensifies. Look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So in the span of two verses, Paul flips the table on these people. Suddenly, what they thought was a badge of honor has become this gross image of pride. Not only that, but he makes the shocking claim that we, like we, are the people of God who worship by God's Spirit and boast in Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We're the true circumcision, the kind that Moses in Deuteronomy 30 prophesied about when he said, and the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It's the inward change of our hearts that matters to Paul. In fact, if anyone ever asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? You might try shaping your response after verse 3. You might say, well, it means, among other things, that I've been welcomed into God's family. I'm one of his. It means that I've been filled with the spirit of God. And I no longer spend my life trying to do and do and do in order to please him. Instead, my life is rooted and grounded in what he has accomplished. On top of giving us what is a beautiful description of Christian identity, notice the theology crammed into verse 3. You see, for Paul to be a Christian is to be a Trinitarian. It's to be a child in the family of God the Father and dwelt by the presence of God the Spirit living for the glory of God the Son. So when you describe your conversion to people, you don't just have to say, well, when I was this age, I said a prayer and I welcomed Jesus into my heart. It's actually the other way around. Jesus welcomed you into the very life and joy of the Trinity. This is why Paul gets so riled up by those who would say that you've got to earn your salvation. See, by boasting in their circumcision, they're effectively saying, I want all the glory in my salvation. Why? Because I'm capable of earning it. Now hit pause for a minute. At this point, you might be thinking, okay, Paul, I get what you're saying and all. It's, it's interesting. But no one's running around first, 21st century Kansas City telling me I need to be circumcised in order to be saved. That's a fair point. You're right. We don't live in first century Philippi. But I think that misses the larger point. You see, the root problem here, the temptation behind all the talk about circumcision, it's not just a first century thing. It's a human thing. At root, it's the temptation to be our own gods, to put ourselves at the center of the universe, and to ask everyone and everything around us to bow down and worship. This is why one theologian, Herman Bovnink, he says the organizing principle of sin, the thing that makes sin tick, 
is egocentricity. And when it comes to Philippians 3, this egocentricity, this desire to put the self, or what our culture calls the true self, at the center of everything, it rears its head in a temptation to add something of your own to the finished work of Christ. That's what Paul's dealing with here. And he's going to spend the rest of this passage totally deconstructing it before our eyes. Look at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone has, thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, look, this religious game that you're trying to play, I've already played it, and I played it better. So how did Paul play it better? Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Translation, I was born into this. I already had the cards stacked in my favor. Circumcised, check. A true Israelite, check. I'm even aware of my specific tribe, check. And then he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is another way of saying, I even speak the Hebrew language, the language of my people. He continues, verse 6, as to the law, a Pharisee. You couldn't get any stricter than that. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, I had a deep religious zeal that expressed itself. It really did express itself to persecute what I thought was a heretical movement. And lastly, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul slams his religious resume down on the table and says, look, all the things you're trying to boast in, all the religious zeal, all the circumcision, all the, the rules and regulations, I had all those things, and I had more. I was at the top of my religious game, that is, until I was on a road to Damascus. On my way to imprison and kill followers of Jesus, when the risen Jesus appeared to me, he kicked me off my horse and he said, stop. Paul, stop. And in that moment, everything changed. Look with me at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So at this point, all the religious people in the room, you can imagine them, their jaws are dropping. Like, Paul, did you really just say that all the things I hold dearly, all my religious zeal and achievements and hard work, it's all lost to you? And Paul sternly, but gently, nods his head and says, for the sake of Christ, yes. Indeed, he goes on in verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. What Paul just said is staggering. In fact, we could take an entire sermon and just meditate on that verse. Let me try to paraphrase it. In light of the infinite beauty, the never-ending, always full, eternally satisfying beauty of knowing Jesus, I count everything not just my religious achievements, everything, my job, possessions, family, 
kids my entire existence. It's all rubbish. In the Greek, it can literally mean excrement, garbage. Now, don't miss the point. Paul's not saying to go about your life and treat everyone and everything around you like rubbish. No, Paul's talking about value here. He's using comparative language to try to describe the incomparable value of knowing Jesus. He's saying when it comes to knowing him, nothing else compares. He's better than anything the world could offer. In fact, if you had to lose everything for him, it would be totally worth it. You would still be happy, content, satisfied. He really is that glorious. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus himself says, whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, which is something that made C.S. Lewis think, okay, we're either dealing with a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. You can't go around telling people, you've got to lose everything for my sake unless you're really who you say you are. And Paul in Philippians 3 is saying, yes. Jesus really is who he says he is. He's really that glorious. As the creed says, he is the son of God, begotten from the father before all ages. God from God, light from light, of the same essence of the father who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. Or to use Paul's words in Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of humanity. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on earth and under the earth and in heaven, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what Paul's doing in this passage, confessing Jesus as Lord. Don't miss the word my in verse 8. For Paul, knowing Jesus was not some kind of philosophical game. It wasn't a mere assent to intellectual truths about Jesus. No, this knowing that he's talking about, it's a real personal communion with Jesus. It's a kind of knowing that looks daily upon Jesus and said, he is mine. He's not just Christ the Lord, he is Christ my Lord. So what's the goal? What's the purpose behind Paul's counting everything as loss? Look at the end of verse 8. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. This is the heartbeat of Paul's gospel. So what is it? 
It's the discovery that the saving righteousness of God comes through one person, Jesus. And note, it's the saving righteousness from God precisely because it doesn't depend on us. We can't earn it. We can't make ourselves righteous. Not even a lifetime of religious accomplishments and accolades could earn us what can only be given as a gift. Let me repeat that. Not even a lifetime of religious accolades could earn us what can only be given as a gift. So we're on the mountaintop of this text. And Paul is simply handing us the binoculars and saying, look. Just look. Behold the grace of God. Behold the beauty of Jesus. Behold the beauty of Jesus, the fountain through whom this grace flows. And as you look through those binoculars and you begin to see maybe for the first time the beauty of God in the face of Jesus, you also begin to feel a weight lifted off your back. And it's the weight of all the things that you tried to build your life on. All the things you thought could save you. In light of Christ's beauty, what you once thought was gain is now loss. What you once held as treasure is now garbage. Why? Because you have met the most beautiful person in the world. You have met Jesus. So where do you go from there? What happens when you put the binoculars down, having said, yes, I will trust you, Jesus. I will trust you as my salvation and my righteousness. I will join with the Apostle Paul and count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing you. What's after that? Look at verse 10. Paul says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So what's after faith and repentance? What's after true faith in Jesus? Conformity to Jesus. Or to put it in one word, Christ-likeness. This is the goal of the Christian life. Becoming like Jesus. Having gained Christ, having been found in Him, not having a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes from God, we get the honor of becoming like our Lord. Paul puts this beautifully in 2 Corinthians. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So the glory we behold in Jesus, the surpassing value that Paul showed us in verse 8, that same glory begins to radiate in and through us as we become like Jesus. How in the world is that possible? It's possible because, as verse 11 says, we know the power of his resurrection. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. 
We are resurrection people. And it's the power of the resurrection that makes it possible to share in Christ's sufferings. As Paul says in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, then that same spirit will raise our mortal bodies. Don't let the last phrase throw you off. When Paul says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead, he's not expressing doubt. He's not saying, well, I guess I'll make it. No, he's simply talking about the means by which he'll get there. He's saying, look, I don't know how I'm going to get to that day. I don't know how my life is going to end. Possibly here in Rome, possibly tomorrow. But it doesn't matter because I know Jesus. And I know the power of his resurrection. And that same power will sustain me for whatever comes. And with that, we've come to the end of our text. So I want to leave you with two charges this morning. One for Christians, one for non-Christians. The first, to the believers in the room, it's simply this. Rest in Jesus. Just rest in Him. You are His, and He, by faith, is yours. You have everything you could ever need in Him. Which means you don't have to search the world for meaning and purpose. He's already given it to you. You don't need to build your identity on the incredibly unstable grounds of social, political ideologies. He's already given you an identity that is your treasure. And you don't need to go about your life trying to please God, trying to earn His righteousness. He's already given it to you. And I promise you, I promise you, in the new heavens and on the new earth, you will be able to look me directly in the eye and I will be able to look you directly in the eye and say, because of Jesus, I didn't lose a thing. Second charge, non-Christians in the room. Those of you who don't know Jesus yet, trust me, I know it's a scary thing to think that your whole life, apart from Jesus, is built on sand. And I know the whole world is telling you, you're all you need. You don't need anyone else. But here's the thing. You know that's not true. You know that you were made for more. That you're not capable of saving yourself. And that's what I'm trying to tell you this morning. That's what Paul's trying to tell you in Philippians 3. You were made for nothing less than God himself. Which is why everything feels so far short from this. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We're far too 
easily pleased. And that's my plea to you this morning. Don't be too easily pleased. Jesus is more beautiful, more valuable, more enjoyable than anything or anyone on this planet. And if you simply come to him, that's all. Repent of your sins. You know they're there. Trust in his finished work. You, too, will be able to look me in the eye on the new earth and say, because of Jesus, I didn't lose a thing. So we end every service at Emmaus with communion. It's part of what it means to know the power of Christ's resurrection and to share in his sufferings. And it's a distinctly Christian meal. So if you're not a believer yet, I'm going to ask you to stay seated. And I know as Pastor Adam usually says, it goes against all social standards to stay seated when everyone else gets up. That's okay. There is no shame here. Trust me, none of us are shaming you for that. We sat in the same seat. So my invitation to you during this time is this. Just receive Jesus. Trust in him as your Lord, as your Savior. And after the service, feel free to ask anyone who you see get up and walk across here and take the meal. Feel free to ask them, what does it mean to follow Jesus? By taking it, they're showing you. I can tell you that. I know him, and you can too. Emmaus, thanks for letting me preach this morning. Come and take. The following audio is from Emmaus KC. More information about Emmaus KC is available online at www.amazekc.com.